Good morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is good to sing that you are a good Father and that you never fail. You are perfect in all your ways. As we come and encounter your word today, may we encounter you today, not just words on a page, but you today. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would awaken our hearts and our minds, that we could engage you and you with us. Help us on this day. We love you and help us to love you more. We have faith in you, but we want to have more faith. So encourage us as we go through this time together in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to be here today. My name's Troy Wilson, as Charles said just a little bit ago. I'm the Lee Summit campus pastor, and uh, I got to meet a few new faces today. Um, Don't get here very often. Uh, I see some old faces here, too. And uh, so it's really my pleasure to be here and uh, preach today. Uh, As Charles also mentioned, uh, Jeff just texted a few of us this morning, and he continues to need your prayers uh, as he's going to be traveling uh, back to Taiwan and uh, then back home very, very soon, and we all look forward to hearing that report. Today, I would like to start off with a few questions, and I'm going to ask just a few questions. As I do, I'm going to pause at each one in hopes that the Holy Spirit will encourage us, correct us, inspire us, and even rebuke us if that's necessary. You know, we just went through that series of uh, seven with the Revelation uh, churches, and each one got a different encouragement, a different inspiration, a different motivation, a different correction, a different rebuke, whatever it takes. And so we are the church, so we should receive that as well as individuals and as heart of life. So here's the questions. Have we become numb to the needs around us? Have we become deaf to the cries for help that fill our lives? Have we become blind to the suffering that unfolds right before our eyes? Have we become lame and incapable of walking toward the awkward and the outcast? Have we become mute towards our family, friends, and others who desperately need to hear the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world full of empty promises and false hopes, don't we? We really do. The world can and the world will continue to have gathered together to coordinate good services, to do good things for people who have needs, but without Christ, the effects are only short-term. They're only short-term. That's why I ask these questions. Have we become numb to the needs around us? Have we become deaf to the cries that fill our lives? Have we become blind to the suffering that unfolds right before our eyes? Have we become lame and incapable of walking towards those that are awkward and outcast? Have we become mute to those family, friends, and others that desperately need to hear the gospel? It is only our hope in Jesus Christ that sets us apart as the church of Jesus Christ. He is our Redeemer. He is the author of our faith. He's the Son of God, the Son of Man. It is Jesus Christ that we center everything in our lives around. We know He is the resurrection and the life. No one, I repeat, no one, we know it if we have faith in Him, comes to the Father except through the Son. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. And as the church, we need to remain in Christ, don't we? That's the call for us. As we abide in Him, 
we will excel beyond the world's programs of temporal helps to something of everlasting value in people's lives as they encounter and then enter into the kingdom of God. But there's a real temptation for us as the body of Christ. The temptation is this, it is to stay engaged in the mission of God while in relationship with Christ and one another. All those have to come into play and we must stay engaged. That's why we turn to the Word of God again and again, isn't it? To look at the life example of those that have followed God. And the ultimate example is Jesus Christ. So today we're going to turn to Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. It brings us to one of countless examples that we have in the life of Christ, of him living out this mission in intimate relationship with the Father and asking others with an invitation to come into that relationship with him. So turn with me. It'll be on the screen as well. Luke chapter 7, verse 11 through 17. I'm reading now the New American Standard Bible. It says this, Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now as he approached the city of the gate, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. Here's the scripture we're going to encounter today. It begins with the two words, soon afterwards. So we know we start in the midst of a lot of things that have already happened before this, and a lot of things are going to happen after this. Soon after, afterwards points to the story right before this. It's the story of a centurion slave being healed by Jesus. I'd encourage you to take a look. Read it this week. Jesus speaks high honor concerning the centurion. He says, I tell you, Jesus says this about the centurion, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. It's an outstanding encounter with Jesus. And that happens in Capernaum. And so Jesus is going to travel from Capernaum to a village called Nain, and that's where we start. The distance is about 20-some miles. It's about a day's journey. When's the last time you've walked 20-some miles? Not very many of us in this room, right? Take a look at this map. Nain is circled there, isn't it? You see Nain, and this is kind of a close-up of my picture. Maybe I sent the wrong one, but you see the Sea of Galilee? Where's Capernaum? It's all the way up there. That's a long trek, isn't it? You see Nazareth, where Jesus was raised as a child, just about six miles away from Nain. So Jesus would have been very familiar with this entire area, wouldn't he? The interesting thing about Nain, it still exists today. It's a very small city, very small village. About 200 people live there. Still has the same name. It's very similar to the, what it was back in the time of Jesus. 
And it wasn't a powerful city. It wasn't a city that had fear of people coming and raiding it or stealing from it because there wasn't a whole lot of people and there wasn't a whole lot of property. So there wasn't even a wall around it. But there was a gate. There was a gate. And the gate would have been where the elders of the city would have gathered together. They would have discussed daily things. They would have uh, interacted with the community of Nain, and they would have made decisions concerning the community. The gate would be like if you're driving the countryside of, of Missouri, and you see this sign. It says the name of the city and the population. One side of my grandparents that live in a small little town, uh, Sheridan, Missouri, northwest Missouri, 186 people. It's had 180-some people probably for 20, 30, 40 years. Hasn't grown, hasn't shrank. This is what Jesus is seeing when he comes to the gate, indicating this is the town of Nain. It's really interesting here that Jesus goes to the city. This is, doesn't just happen that he comes along the city. He goes with purpose, doesn't he? He goes from Capernaum to Nain. Long walk, long journey, and he's not alone. His disciples are with him as they're with him everywhere he goes on this 20-some-mile journey. In addition, there's a large crowd. The large crowd at this point had to be part of, had to be miracle seekers, people who were curious, people who were skeptics, unbelievers, and, the, and some people on the very verge of putting their trust in Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus had been casting out demons. He'd been healing all diseases. You can imagine the crowd was getting larger and larger and larger. We see numbers a few times of how large these crowds were. They were thousands. Now we're not necessarily told that there's thousands here, but very well there's hundreds if not thousands of people following him on this day journey. Interesting. You can get a feel. Just imagine it. They're walking towards this gate. The noise of the crowd the smells of the crowd, the anticipation of the crowd. Is Jesus going to do something? Why have we walked this far? The worries of some. I'm exhausted. I need something to eat. I need a place to rest. We have to find a place to stay tonight in this small little town of Nain. And yet, they approach the city gate, and there's people leaving the city gate. Jesus, his disciples, and crowd must have got really, really quiet because a dead man is being carried out of the city. Now, it's interesting here. We're not going to get into the details, but most likely this man died that morning. Even when Jesus was starting to go to Nain, that man had died because they did funerals really, really quick back then. They didn't wait days, if not a week, they got it done on the same day. And so they have gathered together everything they would need for a funeral. They have gathered professional whalers. They have gathered at least a few flute players. They have gathered someone to bang some cymbals. Why did they do this? Because this is how they mourned. It was a discord of loud, painful sounds coming out of this group around this death. And amazingly, as you look at this, there is a large crowd. That wouldn't have been typical in a small town, but it, the, the word tells us that this was the only son 
of his mother. Jeremiah 6.26 says this, cry, he's speaking to the Israelites, cry, mourn as for an only son, as lamentation most bitter. There was nothing more tragic, more painful, more grieving than losing an only son in that time. Equally painful. But there was something that was drastically even more painful to know that this was a widow who'd already lost her husband, her protector, her caretaker, and now she's lost her son and leaving her no one, no one to mourn with. And so the crowd has come and they have supported her. The noise that's coming, Jesus, the disciples, that crowd silenced at this sight. The widow, almost always, the person would be leading the procession. And there's, it's interesting, even to this day, about 10 minute walk from Nain, there is what is called the Rock Tombs. It's on the road of Endor, and you can walk there in, in about 10 minutes. That's where they were going. That's where they were going. That's what they had planned. They had it all set out. And yet, Jesus has a different plan, doesn't he? Has Jesus ever wrecked your plans? Oh, man, sometimes that's great, and sometimes it's frustrating. This is going to be awesome, isn't it? We already read the story, but what's coming is amazing. In Proverbs 16, 9, it says, A man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. So the whole story pivots here. Something happens. Jesus is leading his group of hundreds, maybe thousands. The widow is leading her dead son who have people carrying him, most likely not in a coffin, but in a stretcher, a large crowd around her. And Jesus looks at her. He looks at her. He sees her in her deep grief and hopelessness. This is where it begins. Jesus connects eye to eye with the widow. It's an eye contact that words can't completely express. He's not afraid of the widow's grief. He's not afraid of the loud symbols, the discord in the air. He's not afraid of it all. You know, recently I was at a funeral with my wife and my 12-year-old daughter, Isabella, and this was of a wonderful woman of God who had been struggling with cancer for about 11 years. 11 years ago, she was given the diagnosis of a certain type of cancer, and she was told she has three to six months to live, and she lived almost 11 years. And it has been a beautiful picture in her life of how God moved through her life, but it was also beautiful for, for us to see how it affected our 12-year-old daughter. Because I would say almost every single night she prayed for Kierce. That was her name. Every single night. Amazing. Thankful for Kierce. Thank you. Thankful for God doing that in my little girl. But as we sat there and we began to hear the recounting of God's faithfulness through Kierce's life, I turned to look at, look at my daughter Isabella. I just turned to look at her as she was looking forward. And she turned and looked at me, and it was an unusual amount of time that we just looked at each other. No words, 
And inside me, I was just hurting for the family, of course, but hurting for my daughter. Hurting for her. And she looked at me, I looked at her, and words can't express how I wanted to make everything right. I wanted to make her feel completely better. I wanted to, I want even now to protect my little girl from all the troubles in this world, but we can't do that, can we? But I can assure her that I'm with her in her pain. That's what's going on here as Jesus connects eye to eye with the widow. He sees her. And this is followed up by an amazing, amazing phrase. He felt compassion for her. It falls with, and he said to her, do not weep. Can you imagine the crowds now? Everyone is silent. Everyone is silent. They want to hear what is being exchanged between Jesus and the widow. Anybody but Jesus says this, it is completely offensive. Completely offensive, rude, disrespectful. It it would be nothing to basically say, those two big guys, come and tackle this guy, drag him out. We're not going to have any of that. But this is Jesus, and when the bread of life says something, something's around the corner, isn't it? So I want to take a trek back. When he felt compassion for her, something, something is getting ready to be stirred up. The Greek word here is a very weird, weird word. I think they're going to put it up here. It's splachnizomai. Can you believe that? That took me a while to pronounce, splachnizomai. It means moved with compassion. It's only used a handful of times in Scripture, and it's only used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's only used by Jesus. It's a feeling in your gut that stirs you to the core, your inmost being. It's an emotion. It's a churning in your stomach. It makes your heart beat fast. Your heart stop. The world stops because you are moved to the core. That's what it means here when Jesus felt compassion. You know, that's a good word, compassion, but I just want you to completely understand what's going on here is Jesus, the Son of God, the bread of life, is shaken to the core with compassion for this widow. That's how the Jews would explain what's going on here. It mirrors exactly who the God of Israel is in the entire Old Testament. He is a God of compassion, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Creator, the Redeemer, The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is a God of compassion. And here Jesus perfectly displays this attribute. I want to share just a couple places that Jesus uses this word. The first one is, you've heard the story, Luke chapter 10, verse 30. I'm just going to tell you the story. Jesus is replying to a teacher of the law. And he responds with a parable. And he says, there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. The robbers stripped him of all he had, stripped him of his clothes, beat him to a pulp, and they left him half dead in the road. Half dead in the road. Now, it says, by chance. Isn't that funny? Jesus goes everywhere with purpose and with mission, and he uses, by chance, a priest is going down the road. Oh, what a relief. A priest is going down the road. The priest sees, makes eye contact, the man who's beaten in desperate need of help. And he goes on the other side of the road. 
as if nothing had occurred. Well, then there's a Levite, right? Oh, the Levite, someone who's called to serve God, he'll do the right thing. Oh, good, the Levite, he makes eye contact with a man in desperate need. And then he goes on the other side of the road as if nothing has happened. Well, then you have a Samaritan. Oh, psh, nothing's going to happen with a Samaritan. The Jewish eyes, this is, this is a person, yet not even a person, less than human. And Jesus in the parable says, the Samaritan, just like the Levite and priest, saw the man in need. He didn't go on the other side of the road, did he? He went to him because he was motivated and moved with compassion. Splachnizomai is what's happening here. He's moved with compassion, and he engages the man. He goes to that side of the road. You can see him getting on his knees. He binds up his wounds. He pours oil on them. He puts wine. He puts him on his own beast. He takes him to the inn, and he takes care of him. And when he has to leave, he says, I'll pay whatever it takes to make this man well. Compassion is not possible without looking at another person in their brokenness. But it does not mean that we will necessarily be moved with compassion. A lot of us see a lot of needs, and we're not moved with compassion. The priest and Levite looked, but they chose to go the other direction, didn't they? They saw the pain and the suffering and decided to do nothing. The Samaritan looked, and he gave his time, his resources, his care, the security of care, and it was all motivated by compassion. There's another story that I think most of us have heard, but it's in Luke chapter 15, 11 through 32. I'm just going to tell a little part of it. And it, Jesus is telling another parable in response to Pharisees, scribes, tax collectors, and sinners. And here they are. He's getting ready to say, and he says, there's a man with two sons. You guys know where I'm going, don't you? There's a man with two sons. The younger one, really a despicable, dishonorable, disrespectful wicked son comes to his father and says, give me what is due. You're dead to me, dad. You're dead to me. Pretend you are dead and give me my half of the inheritance and I want it now. It's amazing the father in this parable divides the estate and gives it to this wicked son. And after some time, the wicked son goes off to a distant country because he wants nothing to do with his family. How heartbreaking for the father. How heartbreaking for the father. And as he goes, he squanders his wealth in prostitution, in partying, in debauchery, whatever your imagination can take you, he dived into if it was wickedness. And eventually a famine hit the land. A famine hit the land, and he had absolutely nothing left. So he hires himself out to someone in that land who have him, a Jewish boy, feeding pigs. And as he's feeding pigs, he begins to hunger for the food that he is giving the pigs. You guys know the story. And finally, he comes to his senses, doesn't he? He said, there's servants in my father's household that have more than enough to eat, and here I am. I will go to my father. I will repent and say, I've sinned against heaven and against you, Father. 
I don't deserve to come back as a son, but take me back as a servant. And so he heads back. The beautiful picture we have here is the father is looking for his son. He wants to make eye contact, doesn't he? He's looking, and he sees his son afar off. He sees him. He makes eye contact. And what's the father do? He runs. He doesn't care about his honor, his respect in the community, or anything like that. He runs with all his heart because he's been yearning to connect with his son. His son goes through the spiel, I've sinned against you, Father. I've sinned against heaven. Please take me back. Please take me back. As a servant, the father almost seems to ignore the servant part. He hugs him. He kisses him. Why? Because the word's there again. Splagizomai, filled with compassion for him. He throws his arms around him. He kisses him. And then he begins to just restore him. Can you imagine this picture? This son, nothing, stinks. He is rank. He's been feeding pigs. He's traveled far. This is the parable picture we have here. And the father says, bring him the best robe. The best robe. Put the ring, the family ring back on him and put sandals on his feet because apparently he didn't have anything on his feet. Not only that, bring the fattened calf, kill it. We are going to celebrate for my son was dead and now he is alive. He was lost and now he's found. You see the principle of compassion. They're present in both stories, don't you? The father's intently looking for his son, and when he sees him, he is not deterred by his brokenness, his filth, his appearance, but he restores him to family status, robe, ring, sandals, celebration, fattened calf, all motivated by compassion. You know, when Jesus is moved with compassion, it's a powerful thing, isn't it? His compassion will bring about restoration in our lives, just as we see in these stories. It's the same for the widow's life, isn't it? This is why he says, do not weep. Jesus living out the prophecy that's been told him. In Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, I want to read this. It should be on the screen. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. Who's more afflicted than the widow? He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. We're getting ready for an exchange of mourning to gladness, aren't we? So Jesus, full of compassion, splagizomai, a heart gut-wrenched moving of his inner being, he puts a stop to the procession. He touches the stretcher. Dead son on it. No concern for becoming unclean and the rituals to become clean because he is the son of God. He is the holy one. Nothing can make him unclean. You could hear a pin drop, I bet. All the crowds, the hundreds, thousands, whatever it was, 
silent. No one's saying, stop Jesus. No, everything is stopped. Compassion rules his heart. And he actually speaks to the corpse, doesn't he? He speaks to the dead man. He says, young man, I say to you, arise. Psalm 33, 6 says this, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. The word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. It is not a hard thing. It is not a difficult thing for Jesus to speak and the dead man rise. It's not a usual thing that happens in the life of these people at this time or the life that we live during this time. But it is not a hard thing, is it? It's not hard for him to forgive our sins either, is it? It's not hard for him to forgive your sin. He's made the way. And so he says, young man, I say to you, arise. Now, before we go to the next part, I just want to say, have you noticed that no one asked him to do any of this? No one asked him to do any of it. You know, you go back to the story right before this in the centurion. The centurion asked Jesus to heal his slave. And if you look at Scripture, you see a lot of both going on where people request a healing, request help, and that's what we should be doing. But Jesus actually doesn't need our faith to do what he wants to do. Many times he uses our faith. He loves to invite us in into the process, but no one has asked him to restore to life this man. The centurion had faith. But sometimes Jesus just wants to do something, and he just does it. And it just shows how deeply he cares about our suffering, doesn't he? If you're suffering today, he wants you to know that he is with you in your suffering. He loves you. We are not alone in it. The amazing thing that happens here, Jesus says, arise, and the man gets up. He sits up in that stretcher, and he begins to talk. What did he say? We don't get to know. Gosh, I want to ask him, what did you say? I mean, you were dead, and now you're sitting up. And he says he started talking. He started talking. I've never been to a funeral like that. Never. If I had or you had, you'd be telling everyone, wouldn't you? I mean, that puts a stop to everything that was planned. One study that would be cool for you guys to do, it's really neat, is study the funerals Jesus goes to in the New Testament. He ruins them all. Every single one, he ruins them because the dead end up alive. I mean, but imagine the crowd, okay? Imagine the crowd of people in this funeral. They had their plans of what's going to happen. The guy just sits up, starts talking. It's mind-blowing. He sits up as if from just a sick bed. He begins to talk, and Jesus immediately gives him to his mother. Now I'm thinking, get the guy up on stage here, you know? I mean, put him on a podium. Let him mingle with the crowd a little bit. But we got to remember, what has been the centerpiece of this whole event? The centerpiece has been Jesus engaging the widow. Moved with compassion for the widow, doing something practical and life-changing for the widow. She had lost everything. No one to care for her anymore. 
more than likely she would have to go to a life of begging after this. Very hard to be a productive part of the community after this because it's how she was viewed without having a husband or a son to care for her. So Jesus immediately gives the dead son who is alive now to the widow. We know that Christ, he changes everything, doesn't he? He changes everything for us. He makes us who were dead alive. No longer do we have to do it like we used to. We have a new way of living things. When we trust Christ, we are made into a new creation, not a better version of ourselves. We put the old away and continue to put on the new. But here you have, when compassion comes into play, it changes how everything happens in life for this widow and for this dead son, for the community, how they're going to see everything, doesn't it? So what's the communities, the crowds? Uh, we think we got the widow, we got the funeral crowd, we got the crowd following Jesus, we have Jesus' disciples. Fear gripped them all, all of them. Why are they afraid? Why, don't, why isn't the first thing they do is rejoice? Why are they in such terror? Why are they traumatized? Why are their senses just upside down. Well, we can imagine, can't we? We can imagine that the presence of God is here. He's just done something we've never seen before. And whenever God appears in Scripture, you have this holy kind of fear. And many times people say, are we going to die? Are we going to die? Or, or we're, we're so afraid we have no words, or it says we, we stood there like dead men. It's to the presence of God. There is a holy terror. There's a holy traumatizing that happens because we are sinful, and God is perfectly, completely holy. Yet out of that holy terror and traumatizing, they glorify him and they praise him, don't they? They glorify him and praise him. And they say just a couple things. They say, God, oh, the first thing they say, he has sent them a great prophet. The second thing they say, God has looked with favor and visited his people. Two good things, right? God has sent them a great prophet. It is true, Jesus is a great prophet. He is the greatest prophet. He is the one that fulfills all prophecy in Scripture, it is true, but it's really not enough, is it? There's religions all over the world that will say Jesus was a great teacher and a great prophet. Then they say God has looked with favor and visited his people. That doesn't even completely get it right because they didn't even really know that the incarnate Son of God was right there in their midst Jesus is the greatest of teachers. He is the greatest prophet. But he is so much more, isn't he? He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. Listen to this. In 1 John 5, 11, it says, This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Jesus makes it very clear, doesn't he? If you have him, you have life. If you don't, you don't have life. Jesus is the ultimate example of God's willingness to 
see, hear, smell, taste, feel, fully experience the brokenness of others, isn't he? And he's calling us to the same. It's all motivated from compassion, a willingness to look and engage in people's eyes, a willingness to be moved with compassion, and then a willingness to go full circle and give our time, our strength, our resources, our encouragement, and our prayers. That's why I started with, have we become numb to the needs around us? Have we become deaf to the cries for help that fill our lives? Have we become blind to the suffering that unfolds right before our eyes? Have we become lame of and incapable of walking towards the awkward and outcast? Have we become mute to our family, friends, and others who desperately need to hear the gospel? You know, we're getting ready to sing this last song, and as the worship team comes up, I just want to read some of the lyrics, and I would hope that this would be our prayer for some of us. It says this, your eyes are on the lowly, though others look away. Your feet run to the broken, your hands are quick to save. Make us like you, Lord. You walk with the forgotten and offer them a home. Adopting the unwanted, calling them your own. Make us like you, Lord. Oh, give us your heart. Oh, give us your heart. Let the light of heaven shine as we step into the dark. Oh, give us your heart. Oh, give us your heart. All to see the kingdom of God and death depart. We want to engage with compassion the community around us, don't don't we? So I'd encourage you for this song to be your prayer. Do it with your hands up, your head bowed, on your knees, standing, singing, however you want to do it, however the Lord leads you to do it, but in hopes that he would answer our prayer. Because in so many ways, heart of life isn't numb, isn't blind, isn't deaf, isn't incapable of walking. We're walking, but there's things that we've turned away from and had an opportunity to engage with. And I know God wants to increase our capacity to be part of what he's doing throughout this world. For those of you that are broken today, I'd encourage you. We'll be here to pray with you uh, during the song and even afterwards for a little bit so we can look you in the eye. We can share hope and encouragement and hopefully some of the compassion that God has for us as his people. But for those of you as we sing this song that have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ to lead your life for salvation, for redemption, we encourage you to come. We'd love to walk you through into coming into his family. Let's stand and let's sing.